0: Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be talking to the Academy Award-nominated editors of Tick, Tick, Boom. We are joined today by Myron Kirstein and Andrew Weisblum. And I I wanted to start by talking about the first 10 minutes of the film, because when, when you're making any film, but especially when you're making a musical like this, the the film really lives and dies by those first 10 minutes. And the the first 10 minutes of this film are so fantastic. But when you take a step back, there's so many elements of what you had to do in terms of editing, in terms of coming in, bringing us in on Andrew's performance, there being archival footage. You have um, Susan's voiceover, which was an element that wasn't recorded until later on. Um, And with all of those elements of introducing us to a world that both is performance-based and grounded through dramatic performances, as well as, you know, honoring this great legacy and really bringing the audience into that world as well at a specific time in the eighties. How did you kind of navigate those first 10 minutes and how much work went into the different variations before you landed on that, you know, especially considering certain elements like the voiceover didn't come until later on. So there were probably a few different iterations of, of those first few minutes along the way, I imagine.
1: More than a few. Yeah. Um, it it was, it was a long process of, of figuring out the right, um, content and context and tone in the, in the, particularly the opening number really, and establishing this framework of, um, the, uh, stage performance as our, as our through line. And then the, um, Archival footage, which was a later ingredient, which Myron can talk about, is was also a good way to set up our context. But it, it was also trying to figure out the right pattern of, of setting up a, the different characters that we were gonna meet along the way, the conflicts that our character was gonna face, but also something Lynn has spoken about, which is the, the rules of the musical and um, how intercutting was gonna work with our stage performances um, and, and what the whole setup was Um, mostly so that we could break those rules later on but at least we had a starting point and an energetic one i think um i don't know myron if you want to talk about the archival stuff obviously
2: yeah i mean it was full experimentation uh based um somewhat with experiments that andy had done in the body of the film that um that we took out at some point but i was inspired by the use of archival but wasn't sure how to quite use it and then we as we screen for the audience, it seemed like they needed some context about who Jonathan Larson was, is, um, how he, uh, influenced, uh, you know, musical theater, et cetera. But, you know, we didn't want to, you know, it's not about, it's not about rent. It's not about, um, you know, what happened to him, um, as far as his death, but we wanted to tease it a little bit, but that just took experimentation for like six months of just tearing apart, the first thirty minutes and putting it back together again. Me working with Levinson, uh, Steve Levinson, and and Lynn uh, in the edit room, like rewriting the voiceover. We we picked up some additional uh, footage uh, to give um, Andrew some moments with Susan, uh, introduce the characters, um, his friends in the diner. Um, so uh it was a yeah it was just a lot of experimentation to get right and um, a lot of guesswork to be honest with you uh we didn't know what the solutions were the audience doesn't ever tell you oh we just need this here um and then you know we're cross-cutting between all these locations and characters and you know um you know, different time periods. So that could be really confusing for the audience. So to, to, keep, to keep a tight rein and all that uh, just took a, yeah, just took a lot of experimentation and then screenings helped, of course, to see if we're getting closer and then, um, and then eventually hopefully we got it right.
0: I mean, the myriad of complexities is, is so impressive and, and jumping off of what Andrew was saying about, you know, creating certain rules, but also really being able to break away from them. One of the things that, that I love and I think really resonates is within the musical numbers, how every single one kind of has its own identity. It's not the same way that we go in and out of them. It's not even the same way that we journey through songs. Sometimes it's primarily on stage. Sometimes we're in a workshop. Sometimes we're in two different locations, you know, or even, a, you know, the duet between um, Susan and Vanessa Hudson's character, which is a duet where they're not in the same space and there's two def- different types of performance going on. Um, and so what was your process in, in working alongside Lynn and, and looking at all the footage that he was capturing in different ways in the musical numbers in really just allowing each song to speak to you all and really let the song and the musical number and the footage tell you what it needed for that journey and for that narrative arc in that moment?
1: Um, a lot of it was uh, in the design, which was part of the kind of production conversation with Alice, our, our cinematographer, and um, and Lynn, of course. Um, I think that one of the major points that you hit on there is the idea that each one is a little bit different and that that's sort of the dynamic of the film music is a musical is that each each number kind of has its own um, grammatical rule book if you will I mean there are obviously commonalities between them and they're and they're set up and it's not confusing but you know some things are entirely pat in the past some things intercut with the stage some things are really only stage um, sometimes they're related. Sometimes they aren't. They're, they're juxtaposed against each other and contrasting each other as in therapy is an example. Um, but that was something that we were able to push to keep finding the differences because we had this blessing of having a, a, a performance, stage performance as our context for everything and our setup for every um, music number that we hit. Um, it gave us license automatically. We didn't have to justify breaking into song because everybody took it for granted that it was a performance that was happening in the storytelling itself, um, in the monologue. So um, I'm not sure um, really the, the, the main experiment that happened for us or the main calibration that happened for us was figuring out how long we had with each number and how long we had in between each number. Um, and that becomes kind of a pacing question. And in some cases, a tonal question, you know, whether a number is kind of living, going too long um, and and wearing at its welcome a little bit in the overall piece, even if it's interesting on its own, um, which is sometimes complicated um, structurally and grammatically to simplify a music number and combine a verse or, um, I don't know, plenty of the other tricks we had, Maren, in that, in that equation.
2: Yeah, and, but I think you're right, Andy, you know, to, to ground the audience with the stage performance, to have that as the anchor really allowed us to do so much. I think if we didn't have that, it it would maybe feel like a little schizophrenic, to be honest with you. Um, but to be able to keep coming back to that location and his performance and essentially his narration, um, we could just do almost anything we wanted to. And, you know, and it's a complicated thing because we are, we are going back and forth with time, almost with every number, um, multiple locations with every number, multiple characters. So it's, you know, it, but again, just to having this one little kernel um, uh, of texture, um, you know, went a long way.
0: And with that idea of of grounding everything back and that always being the centralized thing that you wanted to ensure was the experience for audiences, no matter how many locations or characters we're we're jumping between or the types of footage that we're moving between. There's a lot of really small nuanced details and moments, especially as we come out of musical numbers, like at the end of Sunday, when we get to see Andrew, just take a breath and, and take it all in. And that also kind of allows the audience to do the same thing. And so particularly in regards to coming out of those musical numbers, whether it's that or whether it's then seeing him sitting on the train writing a song after Susan's accused him during a fight of already coming up with a song that he's going to write about that moment. Um, Was that always a consciousness in in what is that nuanced detail going to be right after a musical number that brings the audience back into the dramatic world and into the next scene and the next moment?
2: You know, it's interesting that you point out those two moments because um, that breath right after Sunday is something that Lynn actually picked up in additional photography. He wanted that breath for the audience to just like, oh, my God, this is something we just experienced together. Right. He wanted Jonathan Larson to have that breath, you know, uh, that joy of feeling of what he's just performed. And then that thing with Susan. um, I'm sorry, uh, after the fight with Susan and um, Jonathan after therapy, you know, that little beat with um, him uh, riding on the subway was stolen from 3090. And so we just I just had more footage of that subway car. I was just like, well, we need that little breath to, like, remind us that he still has this other song that he needs to write. And the pressure's cooking. And you start to hear that ticking again in a real subtle way, uh, you know, the pressure building. And so those little in-between moments are just as important as, you know, these huge numbers you just experience
0: And you've both mentioned therapy there, which is such an an emotional crux, particularly in the relationship between Jonathan and Susan. And with that, we're going back and forth between a musical number and, you know, the disintegration of their relationship and being together romantically in that moment. Um, You know, and I've heard you kind of both say that that was a really, really tricky one to edit and to navigate because you had to figure out when are we going back to Susan and Jonathan? When are we going back to the musical performance? You know, because you really still have to give the space and and honor the conversation and honor the dialogue and everything that's happening in their relationship because it's still a very loving place that they're in as they're communicating and as it's falling apart and then also going into kind of like the more showmanship element of the musical number at the same time was that also one that that took a lot of passes to really find the balance and find those nuances
1: absolutely i mean it's a a sequence that it's kind of the trojan horse for us because it's where the the movie turns pretty specifically. Um, You know, he's suddenly faced with the real potential for failure, not just anxiety and failure in his relationship, failure in his career, where she's very pointedly saying, what if this doesn't happen for you, then what? Um, And, and so those, those things are kind of heavy for the movie, but obviously when you juxtapose it with this number that, um, is pretty light. <laughs> it's it's that contrast that that makes it um, interesting. I don't think we were sure exactly how it was going to work, and we had to play around with it. Um, I know that Myron experimented a bit with how intense the fight actually got, so that they felt balanced. But you know, that whole number is kind of followed by uh, a reasonably comedic sequence. You know, with the, with the focus group. But there's also something pretty serious going on um, that he's faced with some real life choices. Um, But if you analyze it, it's the moment where he breaks up with Susan and we might not see her again. And um, what that means to his character is pretty significant.
0: You know, and, and with Jonathan as a whole, as a character at the center of the film, you know, you were bringing up there some of his anxieties and everything that he's pushing towards and that that sense of urgency that he has. And the film really honors him as in all of the complexities of who he was. It honors his charisma, his sense of humor, his passion, his relationships, his friendships. And then it also acknowledges the anxieties that come with trying to pursue something and feeling like you're not quite hitting your goals yet and particularly that that moment and that crux in life as well um were there any pivotal moments or pivotal scenes for you both in in editing the film in really making sure that tonally you were always honoring and and acknowledging both of those sides of of jonathan and everything that he's experiencing
2: oh wow um (laughs) um let me think about that for a second i think um I think for me, um, a sequence like why is, is where I think everything kind of comes together for me. Like, as far as like his pressure and his love for what he does, and then, um, the significance of what he's just experienced with, uh, Michael. And, um, yeah, I guess, um, emotionally, like that has a lot of resonance for me. Um, I think the audience as well. Um, Andy, what do you, what's your, um, What's your take on Well, that? I
1: think, you know, that one of the things he's really wrestling with in the, it, within the movie and what the, one of the things that the film is really dancing around is that this is a character that hasn't necessarily come into his own in terms of his maturity. You know, he doesn't know how to balance work and life and how to, how to make choices. Um, and then when he's, he's faced with real crisis, he kind of rises to the occasion in the end. That he realizes he's gonna he's gonna lose the people he loves in his life, and you know, not just that, but he may not succeed in his career at the same time. So, how does he reconcile that? Is the real is the real trick, and balancing those two issues um, without tilting your perception of him, you know, you still have to relate to the to his struggle as an artist and trying to make it, and not see that as a potentially selfish, blind thing. Like, it was very clear to both Lynn and myself that we needed to make sure the seeds were there, that um, Michael was HIV positive without leaning in them too hard, because um, if we understand that before Jonathan does, you've kind of trumped him as a character, and, and it's hard for that character to recover from that. So those are the kind of balances that we had to think about the whole time, how he's reacting to the questions and the people in his life. You you want to understand why he feels busy and and like that he's in a very important moment in his life for his career when Susan is asking him to move out of the city at the same time and why that is not strictly selfish, but also um, a real problem that he's facing um it's all those things that require calibrating and playing with performances and reactions that which you know they the actors gave us in spades we had the options it's just a question of finding that right balance so that you can relate to his journey yeah
0: I mean, there is just that, that constant overwhelming sense of urgency that he has in a character in, in trying to reach those goalposts for himself and in trying to achieve the things that he's really striving for. You know, and Myron, I think you were mentioning the the ticking of the clock, and there's a lot of really small details in terms of the noises that we hear, the, the cuts that are made, you know, even just the pacing of certain scenes and how they play out for us to kind of step inside his energy in particular moments. Um, and so what were some of the choices that you ended up making in the edit room to to really kind of reference that, that sense of urgency and that drive that just is there all of the time for him as a character.
2: Well, there was a lot more actually at some, at one point we actually started the film with him like staring at a clock and there was that, that feeling of, of, of that urgency from the get-go. And so there was, we just had to experiment with like how much we're going to include in the body of the film. And, and then we could add more things like, you know, that subway car, Um, But that was, you know, uh, a little goes a long way with that kind of stuff. Um, You know, you can overdo it really easily, and then suddenly it becomes this annoying device um, that, um, you know, calls attention to itself. And so to just just to be able to play around with that, um, with, of course, just the entire pace of the film, you know, which just comes naturally overworking on it, you know, overworking a film for, you know, a year and a half and um, collectively between Andy and I. And, um, but, um, you know, I I think that um, at the end of the day, um, you know, a musical has its own sort of rhythm to it as well. And then we're sort of embracing those rhythms of the songs. and And then, you know, things like therapy where we're just kind of like trying to trying to cut them down and and fit you know fit our um, instinct as far as like the fight um, but there's something about a musical that can help guide you in some ways and then um, then we could take a sledgehammer to it
0: and on a, on a technical note, one of the things that I was actually really interested in is there's there's moments where Lynn's kind of like not afraid to let the camera move around a little bit. So when we're with the characters at the diner, you know, it's not necessarily full pan shots, but there's kind of a gentle handheld, um, you know, or just following a, a character ever so slightly as they move within a scene in the center of other characters. Um, and so I was really interested in the intricacies of, of editing and selecting shots and really making moments like that, where there is that gentle movement the camera still feel very seamless and naked to the audience's eye as they're watching it.
1: Um, well, I think we were both very mindful of transitions being fluid, in be particularly between the different um, time frames and locations, so that you you didn't lose your bearings. That there was a logical um, transition between each moment, whether we're going from the stage to the to um, 1990 to, or 1988 even, or back and forth, that there was always kind of a clear path to follow. Um, but grammatically, in terms of how it was shot, I was always just looking for the, the dynamics of it, you know, to, to try and make sure that each cut and each shot complemented the one before and after to kill you in the musical m- material. Um, I always thought that kind of, you know, an, an example of that would be um, Swimming, which is a sequence that had a lot of pre-planning in it um, because there was some concerned discussion with myself and Alice and Lynn that you know, we were basically setting ourselves to watch a, setting ourselves up to watch a guy swim laps. And that's not necessarily going to be dynamic or built to a climax unless you figure out exactly how you're going to do that chromatically, and that you have enough shots to do that and that you um, are building with the music. Um, so that he has his revelation when he does, um, but that's just takes that just takes experimenting and having a lot of different options to work with. Which uh, you know, Alice was great at helping, and Lynn, of course, um, we had everything we needed.
0: I mean, I also, in terms of transitions, was interested in hearing a little bit more about editing Sunday because, obviously, because of Pro. COVID protocols and scheduling, that wasn't everybody in the same space at the same time. That was kind of multiple groups that came in and gave performances. But when you watch it, it feels completely seamless in the transition between each of the groups and each of the performance moments. Um, And I imagine that there was a huge amount of intricacy involved behind the scenes to really pull off a scene like that. And so what were the challenges for both of you with that particular number?
1: Um, well, there were there were there were kind of two tiers to it. The first was getting it in the can to begin with, um, which is figuring out the logistics of of shooting it safely and getting all those all those people to, together, not in the same you know the same spot at the same time, but on the set over the course of the same few days, so that we could tile them with each setup and um, have everything we needed. So there was a lot of focus on the master shots and and what shots we were gonna use for which part of the music, um, but also making sure that it had a clear contrast with the build-up before it of the chaos of the diner so that it would build to a peak and then cut off into this fantasy version and that you had a clear contrast. And while the diner material, of him just working Sunday brunch, needed to be as energetic and chaotic as possible and showing basically how unpleasant it is for him um, the, the, the musical number itself needed to be the polar opposite. Um, but then Myron had some other challenges with it, which had to do with, um, the visual effects and making sure we got some much needed close-ups of some of our, <clears throat> our legends in there.
2: Yeah. Len wasn't, um, you know, happy enough just having Bernadette Peters. He also wanted Cheetah Rivera and, and some other Holly, um, you know uh, Broadway legends. So and and then of course, like Andy was saying, he wanted more close-ups, particularly when the the diner wall goes down. Um, but it's hard. You know, you want to get every you want everyone to have their curtain call, and so you're squeezing a lot of footage into you know a, a song that you can't really expand too much. Um, and then the VFX element just developing that. Um, over, really over the course of the entire post um, and having that frozen, surreal, surreal Sarat element um, that I think, um, you know, where time is frozen, but you're like, well, where's, where's the traffic? Well, we don't want traffic because that'll be get in the way, but we don't want it to feel fake. We wanted a little bit of a postcard sort of vibe to it. Mm-hmm
0: that's really interesting to hear with that scene in particular and, and one of the other things that you were faced with is starting a production with the intention of being able to have live music performances throughout the film and then obviously with the COVID shutdown and then coming back into production that just unfortunately wasn't a reality so you had real life and why which were filmed differently to a lot of the other musical numbers And Boho days you know took a lot of precautions to be able to still film a live performance to get that real rawness and that energy but how did that really affect and impact a lot of work that you were doing, along with the musical editor, along with the sound design team, in really configuring a lot of the musical numbers and and having them still all feel the same in terms of the energy, in terms of that connection and the performance and the way that things sound, even though they had to be filmed very differently.
1: Well, I mean, the 3090 is an example of of a number that, while it was shot primarily to play back, even though there were some live takes, um, it was really um, important that you immediately, even though he was in fact singing, that you immediately believe as soon as Andrew is singing that that's him and he's singing live and, and you're watching a live performance. So we, I know that it was discussed in advance and I was there from the mix, but ultimately we played around with a lot of ideas with the acoustics there. And making sure that the vocal quality of the singing is the same as the rest of his monologue performance, and that meant one of the early observations where there were a lot of plosives, you know, pops on the mics that they were using on on the stage, and that we needed to cheat them in wherever that was, um, not distracting, because it's kind of a subliminal uh, cue that you're hearing an actual um, live stage performance versus an overly polished, uh, pre-record. Um, so that was one of the things we were thoughtful about technically. Then there's always the, the sync stuff, which is always tricky, particularly with choreography. Um, therapy was a bit of a challenge because it had a lot of, um, of quick cuts and, quick movements and because the tempo kept increasing it's almost impossible to stay completely in sync with the pre-record so we had to just recut the pre-record to fit the lip sync a little bit and move them back and forth towards each other until it got to be something that you felt was right Mm -hmm.
2: it's pretty imperative in a musical to have real strong dialogue with your sound supervisor and mixer composers and music editors and You know, it's also great when you have somebody like Paul Shue who also mixed uh, Summer of Soul being your mixer and sound designer. And then you have Alex Lackamore and Bill Sherman, uh, John Davis and Nancy Allen as your uh, music editors. And it's a constant dialogue where you're going back and forth between like, you know, I have to slip a hundred shots by tomorrow to be able to make something feel grounded and real. And then, you know, Paul is saying like, I think I can mix it this way. And it will sound like we're actually in the stage versus Sunday. We'll just make it, you know, big and bombastic. And um, so uh, just going back and forth with all those departments, it it never stops. It's just like we're one big, large unit that's um, um, working together
0: yeah you know and, and we started at the beginning talking about the first 10 minutes of the film and, and so lastly wanted to talk a little bit about the last few minutes of the film because so much of that is about what is the moment what is the feeling what is the experience you want the audience to leave with and sit through the credits with and you know that's another moment where Susan's voiceover really comes into play even just the timing of the moment where she talks about Jonathan's passing when we're seeing the archival footage of rent opening we're going back to Andrew's performance on stage after that which has a really different context after hearing and seeing those moments on screen and so was that also a moment that required a lot of different versions to really figure out the emotional intention of what you all wanted that last moment in the film to be yeah
2: 100 we um we experimented with that until the very end um and again it was it came out of um really frustration of wanting to tell the audience um, enough, but we, di- we didn't want to um, play into the, tr- the biopic trope of like white letters on black, you know, saying this is what happened to Jonathan Larson and this was the legacy of Rent. We wanted to find our own organic way of doing that. And also, you know, the film to some degree um, has climaxed between come to your senses and real life and why and we have another song sort of sort of build out this archival bookend um, allowed us to have an encore and um, and celebrate uh, this story that we've just been told and um, and then we could check in with you know his friends in the audience and we can um, have these little moments that are implied with him back writing something. Maybe it's rent. Um, by you know images with him in the apartments but all that was constructed found up to the last moment of cutting just keep just trying to keep pushing and playing with um there's this beautiful shot um of him you know during that voiceover pulling off the um the cover of the piano and that was something that i had experimented with at the beginning of the film and that shot of the theater workshop the wide shot used to open the film as well it was shot for the opening of the film so to play to, to play around with all those ingredients later and just to keep until you're like okay i'm starting to cry now <laughs> um uh maybe this will work for the audience um, you know that's you know that's how you find it eventually
1: I think, you know, one of the things to keep in mind there is that um, the film is really a tribute to Larson and his legacy um, and not not unlike the original bigger production of Tick, Tick, Boom after Rent and after um, Jonathan passed. Um, and it was important to Lynn not to reveal that the audience at the Tick, Tick, Boom performance was the cast of characters we were living with throughout the film until the end, until that moment where they're all kind of there, in some ways paying a respect to him or celebrating his life. Um, So, you know, when Marn and Lynn stumbled on, we know there was always this question of when do we actually, and when and how do we actually reveal um, that how he died or that he died when he did before he saw his own success. Um, to put that before that number gives it a very specific context, um, which as Marin descri- describes it as something of an encore, but it's also the number itself kind of speaks to what his legacy is and how he found the, the challenges of his time and his life, whether it's the AIDS crisis or whatever other societal questions that were important to him politically as a person that he was able to take that stuff and infuse it into his work and, make a, and actually make a difference in the world. You know, that, 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 that is actually what his legacy is. Um, so I think it helps bring that home that the questions that are being asked are about the significance and the searching in his art that is maybe a little different than some people pursue now.
0: Yeah, I mean, the film really is such a beautiful legacy to him and such a great tribute to everything that he's contributed to culture and and the details of the work that you put into this and, and all of those kind of nuanced pieces throughout are really, really remarkable when you step back and look at everything that you've done. So congratulations on everything with the film. And thank you so much, Myron and Andrew.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.